podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome everybody along to Nesson Dorma, your chat about 80s and 90s football. I am Lee, as usual, and joining me for this latest offering is the man behind many books, including Danish Giant Dynamite, Jumpers for Goalposts, it's Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Hello, how are you doing? And in as a ringer is our very own fifth Beatle, author of, <laughs> author of the title, The Story of the First Division, and unquestionably the greatest minute-by-minute minute writer in the world today, it's Scott Murray. Hello, Scott. Hi, Elise. Lovely to be here uh, compared to Pete Best, one life's winner. <laughs> and just for completeness, I haven't written any books, so don't bother going looking. <laughs> Yet. Yeah. We are um, on Acast and iTunes and Pocket Casts and all that kind of stuff. If you want to get in touch with us, we're at Ness and Dorma Pod on Twitter. There's a website, nessandormapod.com, where you can find us as well. Or there's contact at Ness and Dorma Pod if you want to write to us. We've also got our Patreon service, which is patreon.com slash Nessundorma. For those of you who want to give us a little bit of support and join the club, for that you'll get some extra episodes as we record them, and there's also some bonus written content as well. We're going to start doing a Team of the 90s soon, which we're going to ask you to help us out with, to help us with a shortlisting for each position, and we'll talk to each position and try to come up with a definitive Team of the 90s, which will definitely be completely correct and not open to speculation or argument. But... Um, <laughs> For those of you that have joined us, thank you very much. And those of you that continue to support us, the people... It's been a little while since we've last been on, so we apologise for that. But we had some horrendous scheduling stuff before Christmas. We intended to get this episode out before Christmas, but we didn't. But here we are. And there will be a couple of episodes this month to uh, make up for it. But the people who've joined since we were last on, which seems like a long time ago, these are the wonderful people who've stepped up to the turnstile and slipped their crisp $5 across and under the glass is Michael Smith, Dean B, Adrian Armstrong, Jeremy Davis, Richard, Rory McNamara, C. Hurst, Edward Lucas, Alan Glynn, Oliver McGrath, Chiron Mukherjee, Brian Donegan, and Tim Woods, all of which have given us your support. So thank you very, very, very much. On with the episode. Now, our big chat, as we structure this in the same way as we always do, a couple of bits about players sandwiching a big chat. And our big chat coming up this week will consider the iconic 1992-93 Rangers Champions League run. But more of that later, because we will begin, as we always begin, with a little chat about our underrated player. Um, who is, this week, none other than... The player my dad used to refer to as the mulleted headless chicken, which is uh, which might be unfair, which might get an idea of where I'm coming from on this one. But we're going to talk about it. it's Mr. Mark Hately. Born in Derby in 1961, Mark Wayne Hately followed in the footsteps of his father, Tony, to become a big centre forward. Started his, career, started his career at Coventry, played 90 games in the first division before moving to Portsmouth in the second division in 1983, scored 22 goals there in the 1983-84 season. And then I suppose this is where the kind of madness starts on one level. On the 28th of June, 1984, he was transferred to AC Milan for £1 million from Division 2 Portsmouth. Can we ever see that happening again? No. <laughs> 
What kind of scouting network did they have back then, do you think, Scott? AC Milan to go and find uh, Mark Haitley. Go find me a big lump from Portsmouth, said uh, the coach. <laughs> it's all very odd. Um, and just the fact that he was under, like, uh, Niels Leadham as well. And it's just one of these, you never sort of expect the sort of world of Mark Haitley to collide with, you know, the sort of great, Milan triumvirate of the, you know, of the 1950s, but their sort of paths crossed here. Yeah, it was. It's all a bit surreal. I mean, obviously Milan weren't. This was that mid 80s period where Milan weren't much cop at all. So, I guess it's kind of not, um, not quite as outlandish as it seems. <laughs> if anyone's not familiar with it, it's worth looking up. I think it was his, in October of his first season. He scored the winner in the Milan derby with. Just the most immense header. It's well worth looking up. It's like a proper old school header. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll try and put that on our YouTube thing. But it's worth having a look as well. What makes what it's interesting you said it because when you watch his kind of highlights reels and stuff on YouTube, as I went to go and refamiliarise myself and see if my father's opinion was the correct one, um, his highlights reel really is something to behold because it is sort of basically massive headers and and shots absolutely belted in from six yards out. He didn't. He didn't leave you wondering as to whether or not he wanted to score. Um, it, is that it, it, that seems to be what his highlights really is? You wonder if that's fair, really. Well, he's got, he was quite good from long range as well. I mean, as a girl, we'll talk about later. But um, but you're right. He gave it a, a mighty thump. I mean, he's one of those players who passed me by a bit simply because his peak years weren't spent in England, and in those days, like he didn't have that much access to certainly not the French football or Italian in the mid eighties. I saw a bit of him at Rangers, but. You can, we're never quite sure how good someone was in Scotland, which I which I look back on as a terrible attitude. But it, there was that kind of snobbery, even to a little teenage shit like me. So, <laughs> and then by the time he did come to England, he played for QPR, back to England, played for QPR and Leeds, and he was an old man by then, really. Um, and also, his England career kind of never quite got going, and then he was kind of eventually disappeared as Robson went towards Lineker and Beardsley. So yeah, he's one of those players who. Are, I still don't have a kind of a huge sense of how how good he was, but as we'll talk about Rangers, he was bloody brilliant in that season, and certainly their fans talk about him glowingly. And he completely um, took Leeds apart in a way that suggests, had he played in England in that time, he would have been like you know properly good at any uh, good enough to play for any club, pretty much. So before he before got to Rangers in a minute, before he went to Rangers, he had a, he did the Milan bit. Um, he had 17 goals in 66 appearances for Milan, which doesn't sound much like a centre forward, but again, you've always got to That's have the huge, yeah, you've got to have the huge caveat of this was Serie A in the mid yeah. to late 80s, you know. Um, yeah. He then did 20. He, he went off to Monaco then and scored 22 times in 59 games for Monaco. Arsene Wenger signed him. Would you have him Did as a Wenger him? player? I didn't realise that. I knew he played under Wenger. I didn't realise he'd signed him. No, I mean, not at all, would you? You wouldn't think of it that way. But um, but maybe, maybe again, maybe maybe we're being a bit too snobby about it, thinking of him as just a big lump. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and that was a good Monaco team as well. They play, obviously played good stuff. They had Hoddle in there as well, won the league. Um, yeah, so he must have, been, <clears throat> must have been doing something right. You say um, a bit snobby, and I can absolutely see see where you're coming from but in a sort of weird way he was kind of this exotic figure when he was playing for England in the mid 80s because like you say he you know Coventry and Portsmouth were never on the telly much Milan and Monaco well 
<laughs> not quite time. You know, Milan certainly wasn't, uh, you know, on UK TV. So when he was sort of lumbering about for England, you thought, hold on, this, you know, this guy must be, must be special. You sort of viewed him through that, through that prism of like exotica. And I, it, that doesn't happen often with like England internationals. It sort of happened recently, maybe with like Jaden Sancho. Yeah. Who a lot of people won't have followed him week to week. It oh, in Hargreaves. Yeah, yeah, in Hargreaves, yeah. I was going to say, it's not, and it doesn't, it, it still doesn't happen that often that you've got a player playing for, whereas, you know, just about every other country in Europe um, would have players going, you know, to all four corners of the continent, while, you know, England had this insular attitude. It's lucky we've shaken that off as a nation. <laughs> his, his England career is interesting. He, he started a hell of a lot in the build-up to and then at the start of Mexico 86. It was pretty much a regular in the team, and then... After England made a mess of those first two games, he was dropped. They put obviously Lineker mm. and Beardsley hit off straight away, and after that, he only I'm just having a quick. He only started tw- two more games. One in um, one was a game against Scotland in '87. Then he played his last game, what looked like his last game, at the end of Euro '88, coming on a sub. And then four years later, Taylor mm. pulled him out for one game only, which is a way to Czechoslovakia. Started him, and, <laughs> and then thought, no thanks. I, lo- I love Graham Taylor, but he did make some. Eccentric decisions as England manager. He would pull players in like Andy Gray from Palace, who he gave his debut in Poland in a vital qualifier. And I don't think he, I think he was taken off at half time, never seen again. I hate you here, plays one friendly. I mean, I don't know. It's quite interesting that he did that and then just binned him straight away. The Owen Hargis things for you. Does anyone remember when he, I think he was his first televised game at Bayern? Was it Real Madrid? I think it was until Clive yeah. Silsey was commentating and, and everybody was just going, but obviously this this kid had suddenly appeared. As I think he was 17 with a bubble perm, you know, yeah. at 17. And there was a big hoo-ha with Owen Hargreaves, wasn't there? Because I think he played, he played all his youth football for Wales. And there was oh, a big, I didn't realise that. Yeah, there was a I tug re- of war between England and Wales about who he was going to play for as a senior and he opted for England. I've, I vividly remember, stranger things you remember, I was out in the... The piss in Ealing, and my dad was texting me, say or called me maybe, and said, "There's some English kid playing for Bayern. He's absolutely shit hot." It was that game when they played Real Madrid in the semi-final in 2001, I think, and beat them. They I lost the final that year, didn't they? No, they won it. Oh, they won. finally won it, having obviously had the trauma of um, losing to United and then losing to Real Madrid in right, the semis. Right, okay. But yeah, they won. But yeah, I just remember. He, but apparently, I didn't see the game. But apparently, he played brilliantly in that game. They beat Real Madrid, who were in full kind of Galactico or getting towards full Galactico mode. And Tilsley um, was in full Galactico, look at the English person doing English <laughs> yeah, things. You know, yeah, they... <laughs> which, which, you know, we never quite shake off, do we? No. So anyway, back never, to Mark. We never will, let's be honest. No, back to Mark Hately. Um So he signs for Rangers, which is, as we've already alluded to, is the big, big thing. He off he goes to the Rangers and I suppose becomes one of their one of the, their standout players in the, in their history. Is that fair? Fair to say? Or is that overstating it a bit much? They nicknamed him Attila. They seem to like. I'm not him. getting involved. In, I'm not getting involved in that. Scott, Scott, <laughs> no. Scott can talk about that one. I'll have to feel that one. Um, I don't know. Probably a. Uh, I mean, he did he did enough for them, and he was like he was obviously a major figure in this sort of you know late '80s, early '90s era when Rangers really turned the screw in Scotland. Um, he famously won them the title on the last day against Aberdeen um, hmm. one season uh, he and I think he thought he was like you know hitting his peak late on in his career there's a quote where he says 
around this time, he says, I'm a 30-year-old man living in the body of a 28-year-old. And he's sort of putting that down to the fact that he'd had a few injuries and he hadn't been, you know, he wasn't being constantly driven like, you know, Wayne Rooney was driven since he was 16 or Michael Owen or anything like that. Um, so I think he, you know, he was at his he was at his peak at Rangers and he certainly did, you know, did enough in the league um, and was like the central figure, you know, as we'll go on to talk about behind this mm. um this sort of Champions League uh, I, run that they had. It was a brilliant partnership he had with Ali McCoist. I, mean, I, I know it's, a, again, a cliche, big man, little man and all that, but it, they worked so well. And the 92-3 season, I mean, the, the season as a whole, not just the Champions League, they scored 78 goals between them, which is a hell of a lot. McCoy's got 49, but Haley got 29, which is pretty good for someone whose primary role probably isn't goal scoring. It's probably kind of a more multi-purpose. Um, so, yeah, they were a great partnership. So he's voted uh, Player of the Year by the Scottish Football Writers in 93-94, scored 87 Premier Division goals for Rangers and scored 112 goals in all competitions. They were league champions every season Haley played for them as they were on that nine successive league title run, 89-97. Um Queen's Park Rangers, you mentioned already, Scott, he went to Queen's Park Rangers in 95 for, for one and a half million. Um, in early 97, with Rangers trying to win the night title with a huge injury list, manager uh, Walter Smith decided he needed a new striker and re-signed him for 300 grand, which is not bad money, I suppose. Um, or not bad business. For a vital game against Rangers' biggest rival, Celtic, they won the game 1-0. And this is the game that he was famous, Haley was famously sent off a headbutt in Stuart Kerr. Um, which again, I suppose, doesn't go down goes down quite well with the Rangers fans that kind of stuff or any football fans if you're headbutting the opposition he played four times in his second spell at Rangers only scoring once and transferred to Hull City in 1997 you mentioned Rob 32 England, England appearances across eight years scored nine times in his last game was against Czechoslovakia um, I mean I, you know I, I unreasonably despised him as a kind of teenager <laughs> honestly I as think, a footballer I mean you I know think despising anyone you haven't met it's probably yeah no I was I was like yeah. probably yeah perfect teenage behaviour so it's probably when I was about fifteen and I think and I do think it's that snobbery when I reflect back on now like what is he doing in an England shirt when he only plays for in that league <laughs> <AC> Milan. <laughs> Well, no, <laughs> no, 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 you're right. But the joke of it was, no, it was at the back end of his England career when he was when he was not great for England, and definitely he was great for Rangers, not great for England. And I think I had that 15 year old English football fan snobbery about what the Scottish league was and all of yeah. that kind of stuff, which you look back and is was a ridiculous attitude. But you know, in my defence, I was young and stupid. Now I'm just old and yeah. stupid. But. Uh, um, is he underrated, I suppose, is the question, which is what we always have to ask in this because he's nominated for the underrated discussion. Is he an underrated player? Certainly by me. I'll hold my hand up and say that he was definitely underrated by me. I, th- I think he is. I think in a, in, a, in a slightly different way, he's a victim of that. Uh, the, the way that Juan Veron and Andrei Shevchenko were shit because they had bad <laughs> spells in England. Hately, it's slightly different, but it's the same kind of thing. The fact that he doesn't have much of a CV in English domestic football means that he's I don't know he's underrated I think a lot of people just don't really know he's kind of forgotten as much as underrated um, mm. but uh, all, yeah, uh, his, his record for eight and, and the thing is like, you would think that the, the Leeds game which we'll get to would have kind of punctured all that snobbery but but of course it doesn't um, and yeah I don't know I, I, I would say more forgotten than underrated actually mm. the more I think about it Scott oh yeah definitely underrated and I think 
there is that little bit of I don't know whether it's snobbery or that um you know when you just look at a player and his 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 look and his gait and <laughs> his, he fails the eye his test his size say, yeah. and, uh, and his haircut and all these things um makes just makes you think big lumbering Egypt but he was <laughs> but he was obviously better than that you know he wasn't he didn't just score headers as Rob was saying earlier he would um you know, he could find a net from pretty much anywhere, and he would set up his fair few as well, um, and not just like you know with knockdowns, but the like. You, get, you know, he he could cross a ball. You get some, yeah, which a good point. You get some big, big forwards who don't necessarily know how to use their size. I get the impression with Haitley that when he was playing well, he would be an absolute nightmare to defend against. He'll bully you. And just kind of run you ragged, and you just come off from thinking, "Sod that! I'm too old for this, or I'm not getting paid <laughs> enough for this." Some other, you know, not not completely unlike Duncan Ferguson. I think he had a really good kind of sense of how to use his power and size, mm. um, kind of in a way that was legitimate at the time. Obviously, now it would be completely different. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I get the impression he would have been a nightmare to play against. Which some big forwards, some big forwards are difficult to play against, but not necessarily a nightmare. Whereas I think Haitley would have just overwhelmed you physically, um, and not just with power as well, because he was actually pretty fast and he was a good, a good strong runner with the ball as well. I mean, he does also say that he completely understands that in his early days at Cov and Portsmouth, that people would look at him and just think, you know, there's a big lad there you know, working hard and using his power and strength. But he's, he then says when he went to Milan and Monaco, that was when he, he had to learn to use the ball. And he, and he had to learn to be able to hold it up properly and to be able to mm. to pass and think about, you know, space and where to go in a way that he just never done before. When he was in England, it was just run through everything. So then when he rocked back up at Rangers, there was a bit more of a sophisticated version of, of what he'd previously been. So, yeah, underrated, I would say. Well, he certainly passes the count the medals test, doesn't he? Mm. If, if we are to use that as a measure of somebody's career. Uh, so he's, he's doing all right there. Before we move off on... So, yeah, he probably was underrated, I think. But before we move off on that, a little bit of a postscript, because the postscript of his career was at Ross County, <laughs> where he made two appearances in 1999, playing for Neil Cooper. Um, to, uh, the newspaper report on him leaving after two appearances. These are the quotes from the two to the, the two men. Mark's presence was having a negative effect on us and a positive one on the opposition, said Neil Cooper, <laughs> the manager. <laughs> Haitley responded with, I think Neil has basically just bottled it and I'm going to put it down to experience. It's, un- <laughs> it's unbelievable. I told him it was just a coincidence that the team had gone into a lull, but he wouldn't have it. The whole thing has just been a waste of time for me. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to tail off, eh? Well, and also the fact that he finishes career in the Highlands because he does have that sort of Highlander <laughs> yes. look about. You can imagine him sort of strolling around the Cairngorms with his balls out, <laughs> <laughs> you know, freshly dusted in the breeze. Loads of midges coming at him. Yeah. yeah. Right, so there you go. That is. Um, that that was Mark Haitley, we think was was him and his balls in the breeze are underrated. So there you go. Mm. Let's move on to the main discussion, which is gonna have Haitley featuring it quite large as well, which is the Rangers Champions League season of nineteen ninety two ninety three in the biggest of big cups. 
it's probably worthwhile reflecting on you know where what they've done in the big cups up to this point before we talk about this season. The best ever run was 1959-60. Scott will want to jump in at any point because he's pretty good on the old history stuff. Uh, the best ever run was in 59-60 when they reached the semis and were thumped by Eintracht Frankfurt, who was subsequently given that legendary walloping by Real Madrid at Hamden. Um, in 1987-88, they got to the quarterfinal. They beat Dynamo Kiev, the famous home leg. This is, the, this is that famous home leg where Sunes brought the touchlines in 10 metres, Scott, to counteract Kiev's wing threat. Yeah, but it's weird that everyone sort of just uh, remembers that because all of the all of the you know available footage and certainly all of the reports, the contemporary reports, say how well Rangers played in in both of those matches. Um, they'd given Kiev the runaround, really. Um, so yeah, they lost the first leg one um, nil, but they'd been they'd done really well for like an hour or so, contained Kiev. Graham Roberts concedes a clumsy penalty. Um, there was a quote in the um, in the Guardian that said it was a performance on the whole um, by Rangers that was worthy of Liverpool at their most obdurate, which Ooh. you know was a a real compliment at the at the time in the sort of mid eighties. Um, and then they and then they beat them two nil. At Ibrox, with I mean, there was a completely ludicrous um, opening goal, where the the keeper threw it into the into the back of one of his defenders, and uh, and allowed Rangers to just sort of stroke it home. But I th- I find what's really odd about it is that the you know the much um, the much admired Valerie Lobanovsky was on the was on the bench uh, for Kiev, the the great tactical genius. Um, and he was he was outdone tactically by Graham Soonis, not once but twice. So I'm uh, I'm calling a red flag on Lobanovsky. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not having it. All those fucking think pieces have been written about him. Yeah, this is all you need to know. Outthought by Soonis. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I mean, it happened. These are these are facts. <laughs> facts don't um, care about your feelings, as people on the internet say. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was you know that was a great performance. Obviously, they didn't. I think they only made it to the the quarters that season. But that was that was kind of an early statement of intent for the you know the sort of new Sooners era, and the, I think know, which would obviously later become the the Walter Smith era. I think it would be remiss to mention that season without referring to the infamous Sooners tackle against Stoyby Caress, which I'm sure everyone knows, but in the quarters, it's just one of the funniest things you'll ever see. I mean, I don't even know where to start. The fact the fact that he goes at a groin height when the ball hasn't left the floor, or the fact that he then goes, starts pointing to the back of his calf to the referee based on what, I have no idea. Um, How old was Sooners just, have just been? Just a yellow card. How old was Sooners have been at that point? About 35 maybe. Right. But he was just very cranky. And he happily so, took it. Yeah, he's thirty-four. Yeah, thirty-four. Yeah, the affronted look on his coop and having just plunged his well. studs into as, someone's, <laughs> as though he's got like a leg to stand on. In yeah, that situation. Unlike the guys yeah. who really, tackled. Yeah, yeah, really brazen. It was, it was quite. It was quite wonderful. What game? What kind of game are we playing now, ref? That I can't attempt to do a vasectomy with my boots on somebody, and you sort of have a problem with it. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was 87-88. 89-90, they 
In round one, they lost to Bayern Munich, quite a thumping. In 90-91, they walloped Valletta 10-0 on aggregate. They lost 4-1 on aggregate to Red Star Belgrade. Yeah, there's a lovely... There's a lovely story about this. I think it was Jonathan Wilson who told me that. So they sent, as soon as sent Walter Smith, who was Eddie's assistant, to watch Red Star in the first round and do a scouting report. And Walter Smith came back in the office and basically said, I didn't bother. And soon as said, oh, what, are they that shit? And, he, and Smith said, no, <laughs> we're, we're fucked. We've got no chance. And it, of course, this was a great Red Star team who went on to win it. Um, I, I, I might slightly misremember the details, but it, basically it was that. Smith, Smith was sent to a scouting report, looked and thought, oh, Jesus, and just didn't bother. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it was they, definitely they use of the phrase, we're fucked. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's on record. <laughs> I just remember that he watched about 15 minutes, about 40 minutes of the game and then just decided to go and get sort of taken the <laughs> nightlife of Soviet transition Belgrade instead. Uh, 91-92, because obviously they're just winning championships back to back all the time at this point. 91-92, they went out in round one to Sparta Prague on away goals. 92-93, we're going to talk about. Then 93-94, they went out in round one again to Levski Sofia. So I suppose it's fairly safe to say that generally speaking, not a great pedigree. In this, no. uh, in this, and in fact, ninety four, ninety five, they're losing the preliminary round, losing on both legs to A E K Athens, a couple of oh. years after this season. So it's a strange old thing. Go on. And also, what's um, what becomes a recurring pattern is that they, in, they let in an awful lot of late goals, so they're in a reasonably good situation, and then suddenly there's like two late away goals in the last 11 minutes against Sofia. Um, I think they let in a, did they let in a late goal against, um, against Sparta Prague. Um, yeah, I think it was a Scott Smith's own goal. And I mean, this, this weirdly goes all the way back to, you, you mentioned them getting their arses handed to them by Eintracht Frankfurt in 1960. I mean, that first leg was kind of in the balance, <laughs> kind of. And then they let in three in the last seventeen minutes. So they they shipped five in the second half, <laughs> and it was kind of it, it. Just seems to have been this habit with Rangers all all the way through their Euro- European Cup uh, travails <laughs> that they sort of when they unspool they really unspool, but they always they, they quite often throw it away very late. And and this season that we're talking about is the is kind of the exception to the rule. Yeah, so it, it is a kind of an oasis in the desert, really, this season. And it's fairly safe to say, I suppose, from a Rangers point of view, that when you read about this stuff, that Rangers are fairly desperate to equal Celtic record in this competition. And they never came closer than this year, I suppose. Hmm. So coming into 92-93, what state are Rangers in? Walter Smith's taken over from Sunis, as we've mentioned, he was his assistant. He took over in 1991 and guided the club to the fourth league title in a row in 92 They'd won that by nine points from Hearts in the old two points for a win system, so it just kind of, you know, sort of says how big the dominance was. How, how, uh, Scott, how much of a kind of, given how relatively easy the league was for them at this time, mm. what what did Europe mean to Rangers at this point? What was it like, do you think? Um, I mean, obviously, the the Celtic thing hangs over them and always will until they win a European Cup of their own, which they won't. <laughs> so it always will. Um, but, you know, that was... And it, I mean, this was still kind of in the time where you could... It was within... 
not living memory. Well, I mean, it was living memory, but it wasn't quite as long as that. You know, it was only like a, just a decade before that, or just a little bit longer that a team like Malmo could get to the the mm. European Cup final. Um, so the the idea of of going for it wasn't wasn't complete pie in the sky. And then when you know Barcelona were the holders this year, they went out in the in the preliminaries, and you know suddenly things kind of opened up a wee bit for them. Um, you know, by which time the champions of England and Germany had already gone. Mm. So it's kind of yeah, it was you know there was definitely a sense that this really could happen, and they could sort of park not park the league, but. Like by this time, Aberdeen had kind of, you know, Aberdeen ran on fumes for a few years after Fergie left. But I, I think was it ninety one or ninety when Haitley won the league for them for Rangers in the last minute in the last match against Aberdeen. Whatever that was their sort of mm. final, final hurrah. So, in Celtic, were useless at this point. They were really struggling. They had no money. Um, there were, you know, a couple of bad managers in a row. So, so Rangers could sort of take the foot off the pedal, put off the gas a wee bit at home, and because they were almost certain to win the league, certainly in this in this sort of early to mid nineties, it started to get a bit harder for them again when Celtic, you know, got their act together. But but right at this point, um, yeah, it was Europe was the thing. And of course, you know, Rangers had, you know, that period where um, the English clubs were out of Europe altogether because of the Heysel ban. Um, Rangers kind of had the the glamour for four or five years to themselves. So we were used to them competing in Europe and, you know, giving it a go, even if they were all, always out by I, Christmas. I, more yeah, I can remember them being the team you were looking out for and shouting for. In Europe, because they were the only British interest of you, you know that way, and that way in Clyde, which I was at the time. Um, that it, it was, it was. I remember it being quite a big thing. That the big signings coming into the season. Um, so they had this crushing dominance at home. So the European game was kind of well, the European games were kind of big games for them. The big preseason signings were Trevor Stephen returning from Marseille, and Dave McPherson came in from Hearts. We'll talk about the squad in a bit more detail as as we get through. But they were the big signings coming in. Um, the team was, well, the competition was eight teams at this point, for those who don't remember. It was basically two groups of four, and then the the winners, the, the people who topped the group went straight through into a final, basically, and there was a qualifying round beforehand. Is that right? Two two qualifying. Well, three if you include the preliminary round, but Rangers played in two right. qualifying rounds, yeah. So it was effectively qualifying <clears throat> rounds, a group stage, and then at the end of the group stage, the two people top of each group, two teams top into- went straight into a final. Yeah, and uh, and the groups were that p- part of the groups was the only bit that was technically the Champions League, so yes. the the heads the league. But yeah, the rounds beforehand were just uh, qualifying rounds or whatever, first and second round. So let's um, have a look at um, the actual quali- Well, so to get into the place in the first place, Rangers had a game against Lingby, uh, home and away. They won the first one two nil, goals from Haitley and Hoostra. And then they played against Lingby away and won 1-0 in front of 4,000 people with Ian Durant scoring. And then there was the Leeds game that came next where they won home and away again in front of yeah. some pretty big crowds. I mean, How big those, a win was this at the time? 
Uh, it, was, it was absolutely huge, not least because of the snobbery we've already mentioned. Um, we know all about the lead story. You know, they lost to Stuttgart and then they got an extra game because Stuttgart fielded an eligible player and they went through. Um, and it was known as the Battle of Britain, obviously. And they, they were worried about, so so worried about hooliganism that um, they agreed to have no away fans at either game. Um, the first game in particular, the atmosphere was just incredible. And then after 60-odd seconds, McAllister scores this brilliant volley and there's the most perfect silence just suddenly. <laughs> it really is worth looking. It's really stunning, actually, um, as well as the goal itself, which is also brilliant. Um, and what one thing I like about what Rangers did to Leeds, as well as kind of shoving English snobbery where it needs to go, they kind of reversed... One of the biggest things of English snobbery was always about Scottish goalkeepers, of course. Um, the Rangers got back into the tie because John Lukic, an English goalkeeper, punched a corner straight into his own net, um, which was it was a howler. He was under pressure, but still a howler. Um, then McCoy scored from close range after, which was something like his 27th goal of the season, and it was October, which is quite absurd. Um, so they won 2-1, but I think even then, most people thought... Leeds, particularly with an away goal, would would be quite comfortable at Ellen Road. And Archie Knox, who was Walter Smith's assistant, used to be assistant to Alex Ferguson at United. Ferguson also knew Walter Smith. So Ferguson, for the next two weeks, meticulously sent them cuttings of the English press, just saying, basically, Rangers are shit, Leeds are going to win comfortably. Um, and they put them all on the dressing room um, wall, you know, that whole cliche of motivation. Um and also, there was a lot of talk that Leeds would be, uh, Ellen Road would be very intimidating for Rangers, which, as a couple of the, there's a, a nice book out called uh, A Season to Be Cheerful, I think, about this season. And a couple of the Rangers players are interviewed and they say, well, look, come on, if we've, we've done old firm derbies, Ellen Road isn't going to be particularly intimidating by comparison. And in the tunnel before the game, Ian Durant apparently was just shadow boxing in Chris Fairclough's face, which I'd love to have seen. Um, <laughs> but the point about it is that. Um, is that Brow- Durant then makes an early goal by winning a header above Fairclough, who he had no right to win a Fairclough, uh, no right to win a header in front of. So it kind of maybe it kind of worked. I don't know, but um, but yeah, I think I think there, there was huge motivation to prove people wrong because there was such a kind of negativity towards Scottish football. Uh, even then, even at a time when actually Scottish football was, was very good and arguably better than English football. Um, so, yeah, I think they took huge motivation from that and, um, and from all the, the press cuttings Ferguson sent them. It's worthwhile pointing out that M- M- Ali McCoy's winner in the first leg was his 25th goal of that season. 25th, yeah. And it was the 21st of October. Yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. I'd love to... I mean, has that ever... I, I can't think I'd have to we haven't looked through the records but it's uh, it, I can't think that's happened since 25 goals were the 21st of October from a player can't well, it? It, off, might have, it might have off the top of my head in, in Scotland there was the season that Rangers were going for 10 in a row and Mark and Neg- Negri yeah. scored about 700 goals <laughs> and then uh, and then and damaged, his, damaged his eye playing squash and then he was <laughs> he was he, he was out for a bit and then yeah, scored about one or two, and and sort of Celtic won the league to stop you know ten in a row and and probably save Glasgow from being raised to the ground that <laughs> evening in, in flames and hellfire. So there um, you go. So they get into the group stage after that uh, 
magnificent. I was, I, did, oh, sorry, worth talking. No, no, I was just going to say it's worth talking about the actual the, the Leeds game. The two goals they score are brilliant. Hately hooks a bouncing ball into 20 yards early on, which stunned Leeds almost as much as McAllister's had Rangers. And then Gorham, Andy Gorham, who was an absolutely brilliant goalkeeper at his peak at that time, arguably as good as anyone in Europe, certainly as a shot stopper, made a lot of really good saves. Uh, McCoy scored a beautiful goal on the break in the second half. Haitley went on this long run, deep cross, diving header. And after that, Leeds were screwed, obviously, because the away goal, extra away goal comes into it. And I think they scored one late on. I can't even remember. It might have been Cantona. But yeah, it was quite an emphatic It was Cantona's last ever goal for Leeds. Yeah, I mean, and he got a lot of stick because he missed a few chances that game or they were saved and he got a fair bit of stick. But I think overall Rangers were just a better team. And and then when they came down, they had a really good celebratory session that night until like, I think they were out till like the early hours of Thursday morning. But when they came down the tunnel, Fergie was there waiting to congratulate all in the dressing room, which I find bizarre. But um, yeah, he'd obviously taken Leeds winning the league particularly well. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, also, this was the second time this had happened to Leeds because Celtic did a number on them in yes. the 1970 semis. And everyone at the time just assumed that, like, sort of Don Revy's side would would sort of waltz past them. And uh, Jock Steen's That's team a, had other ideas. And, yeah, and it's a really good point. The away then. So, so there was kind of a callback from that. There was a bit of, oh, my God, this has happened again to Leeds. That sort of sense that they're, um, well, like Rangers in a different way, that they're just jinxed in the in the European Cup. Uh, just to go back on the Cantona thing, this was it was this time when he was falling out with Wilkinson, and he was dropped for the game against QPR in between these two legs. So it started, and, and this is the kind of beginning of the end for him at that club, yeah. and then he went on to play somewhere else. Um, so. So then we are into the group stage. So Leeds have qualified for the group. Uh, Rangers have. Sorry, Leeds haven't. No, sorry. sorry. Rangers have, yes. There's uh, eight teams in the group, as we've already mentioned. This format had been... It's a revamped format. Is this the, the first year of the group stages? No, yeah. they've done it the year... Haven't they done it the year before? So, yeah, they, the second year... I think it was the first year it was called the Champions League, possibly. Uh, but it was the same format, basically. Two groups of four top team go through straight to the final. Um, and Scott makes a good point that because, uh, obviously in those days, you had to win the title to go in the European Cup. And by the time you get to a group stage, you've already lost the champions of England, Germany and Spain. Spain being the holders, Barcelona, who lost to CSA Moscow, were going to Rangers group. And even that's quite an interesting story because they got a 1-1 draw away, which looks fine. 2-0 up at home and everything is it looks you know completely straightforward and then the sky falls in either side of half time they concede three in about 15 minutes i think um and they went out so yeah and in those days obviously no second chances or anything so um i'm sure your Cruyff was thrilled with that but it meant that there were there were big opportunities you know marseille and milan were the big favorites um there were other good teams like porto psv uh cska and obviously rangers but um but not massive amount to be afraid of I don't think so their group is as you say Rangers group is Marseille Rangers Club Bruges Brugger and uh, CSK Moscow the other group just for completeness is Milan got IFK Gothenburg Porto Eindhoven so we head into the group stage to which they have to play Marseille and where they get a draw at Ibrox against Marseille 
there's a there's a beautiful moment right at the start of of this match and the rangers very the very first touch from a rangers player <laughs> in the champions league is is oh, Dave God. McPherson like just blootering the ball into Rosed under <laughs> un, under not much pressure it has to be said there's just like a long ball and he just thinks right yeah I'm just hiking this out of harm's way and it kind of <laughs> it, it it kind of it was that it, it was lovely because it was that initial sense that okay Rangers were are certainly worth being you know their place at, at this stage but there was also that underlying nervousness are are they a little bit out of their depth certainly against against Marseille who were the hot favorites to to win the group and of course it would soon be proven as they as you know Marseille romp into a into a two goal lead i mean the second goal Rudy Voller taps into an empty net after Stephen Presley takes Gorham out of the game with a like this sort of weird sliding tackle that knocks a ball into into Voller's path, and at that point you're sort of thinking, "Oh ho, two 0 down at home." Um, you know, there's probably, trouble here. It's probably worth mentioning the quality of that Marseille team as well. Just some of the names in it: yeah. Bartes, Onglemar, who was a brilliant right back; Basil Bolly, uh, Marcel Dessay playing midfield in those days; Didier Deschamps, Frank Soze, obviously went on to Hibs later. Abidi Pele, who was fantastic and in the 91 team, and then Boxic and Voller up front. I mean, there's some serious players in that team. Um, and for an hour, they gave Rangers a battering. And it, the interesting thing about it, it wasn't just a kind of a football battering as well. They actually bullied them, which I think caught Rangers by surprise. Um, they basically kicked lumps out of them for most of the game. Rangers were a bit unlucky there because they had a few players missing. McCoist was out injured crucially. I think Goff, one of the defenders went off injured which is why Presley was on they also had the foreign world to contend with they got off just one minute to the second half yeah yeah so they were a bit ragged for an hour and then um in fact they were very ragged it could have been a lot worse and then it kind of all changed in one moment when um Gary McSwiggan scored that famous long-range header so I think it was his first goal for Rangers um and that changed everything and I'd hate you kind of nabbed an equaliser and I think the kind of stock quote about the game is had it gone on five minutes longer would have beaten them um, and you can understand why, because it, it's one of those games that just lurch violently, and by then Marseille were just kind of hanging on, really. What's interesting is since then, Mark Haitley has since claimed he was off with cash, not, and obviously this is the, that Marseille yes. team, you know, so Haitley since claimed he was off with cash not to play against Marseille in the penultimate group I think it was in the match. second game. Yeah, yeah, was yeah, it the se- yeah. But yeah, which which has a slightly, takes a slightly sinister twist when we get to the Bruges game, but yeah, that, I, I'd be inclined to believe, well, yeah, I would certainly believe him given what's gone on, but... Um, yeah, the kind of allegations and fixing run throughout because um, later in the group, Marseille walloped CSK 6-0. And CSK were a good side. Obviously, they put Barcelona out. They're drawn at home to Marseille. And by all accounts, again, from the Rangers players, but just generally, they were the kind of team you might beat, obviously, but they weren't a 6-0 team. Hmm. Um, so, the, yeah, I mean, I never know. But, um, but given that Marseille obviously were done for fixing the league, uh, it's not beyond the rounds but Haitley said he got a phone call didn't he from someone with a French accent and um, he basically told him to F off and, and that was yeah that. a friend of a friend of an agent that he'd never heard yeah. of and all this kind of stuff so yeah mm. so yeah so there's that that's an epic kind of start and then the next tee up they go to play CSK Moscow away and win 1-0 which um, is and it was a bit of a bruiser 
It was played in you, Germany, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, and it kind of this is the this is the match that sort of set the set the tone for the for the Rangers run because the goal, the winner they scored, um, Ian Ferguson, sort of scored early with this deflected shot that sort of looped weirdly over the over the keeper and it was just you know a million to one type of um type of incident although as we'll see it wouldn't be the last time that the rangers won a game like this um in, in this run and so it's this kind of weird um harbinger of of what's about to happen in the you know the scott nisbet goal that we'll talk about in a bit that everyone remembers um, but this was, you know, very similar, and they, they squeak, you know, squeaked through, and um, and this is, I, I think, this is the one that, because they'd come back against Marseille, the one and away game. That's when they start to think, yeah, hold on, you know, maybe we can, we can cause Marseille a bit of bother here. So they survived this almighty goal mouse scramble in the first minute as well. To come out. Of course, I mean that was after what fifteen twenty seconds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, I think it took was it. It was like Gorham had to make a save, and then Trevor Stephen and uh, John Brown sort of combined to to hack the ball clear. I mean, that yeah, again, that would have would have changed the tone somewhat. Whatever happened the, to the goal? The luck scramble? was definitely on their side. Whatever happened to the goal mouth scramble? Why do they never happen anymore? Is everyone too technically correct now or something? I can never quite work it out. Is it because a foul would be blown straight away, whereas in the past, yeah, that's probably you wouldn't blow a foul until yeah. five people were down, <laughs> yes. nursing career-threatening injuries. Yes, that's true. That is so we should true. we should say though that actually, just in the, Scott makes a good point. Actually, as well as Rangers did, and they did brilliantly, it, it was every game was a struggle. They never, they could never really relax. I don't think they ever won a game by more than one. In fact, they didn't. Um, and a lot of the games were really hard fought. It wasn't, you know. More of their kind of champagne football was played generally in domestic games or against Leeds. Um, so they really had to scrap for everything. And funnily enough, the best, probably the best they played within the last game, which they didn't win. But um, but yeah, they really had to scrap for everything. So then they go to off to Belgium and another way fixture, this time against Club Bruges. Captain by Frankie Valderet, Van der Elst, and a 19-year-old Daniel Amacacci up front for this uh, team, for the Club Bruges team. Mm. Yeah, decent one-all draw. I mean, I think it became a better result when they found out after the game that Marseille hadn't won in CSK. I, I suppose at those stage, I mean, that's only... So they'd had a big break. This was the start of the March, the previous game yeah, that's in right, December. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess at those days, because also because it's quite new, everything was a little bit cagey. There wasn't a sense now you might think, oh, we need to, you know, we can only afford to drop X points or whatever. I think it was just kind of game to game, see how you go. I think it was probably around the fourth and certainly the fifth game when it all started to get a bit real and they actually realised there's a serious chance here of getting to the European Cup final. But I think, yeah, Bruges away, I mean, probably if you look back, that might be the game where you think oh, maybe they could have picked it. But at the time, I think it was an OK result as I say, because Marseille hadn't won in CSKA, they'd also drawn one all. And then they have a return leg against Bruges in the next round, which so they come back to Ibrox, and this is when they do win goals by Durant and uh, the Nisbet goal, which we've talked about. Yeah, this I mean, there's so much worth saying about the game, Scott. You might you should probably start. Well, um, 
I don't know. I mean, I was kind of wanting to tap into your cricket knowledge as to how, be- <laughs> as to how best to yeah. describe the spin. That, it's not um, a leg break because it goes from. It's like a. It's like a, yeah, you're right. It's like a, a off 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 spinner that basically kicks from a length, like a, a nastily <laughs> bouncing off spinner. Yeah, it's the most astonishing goal. Um, it's worth saying just before that, the kind of context of the game, Durant scored a really nice goal. Then Haitley mm. was sent off for not a huge amount, ostensibly an elbow. Now, of course, it was a direct red, which meant he would miss Marseille away and also the other game. Um, but more to the point, it leaves Rangers in serious shit because it's not even half time. And they probably know that if they draw and certainly if they lose, then they they you know they need snookers. And Bruges had equalised not long after half time. Lorenzo stunned, I think. And basically, Rangers are hanging on for dear life then. And then, yeah, this this crazy Scott Nisbet goal, which is particularly a particularly nice story because he had scored the own goal that put them out of Europe the previous season. Um, and yeah, it's just it's amazing because he, he kind of half tackles, half tries to cross it. Uh, takes his wicked kind of spit up, spins up in the air. And the interesting thing is that the pitch was actually really soggy. So it must have hit the one kind of bony part of the pitch. <laughs> it's extraordinary. And then loops over the keeper, who was reasonably short for goalkeeper. But even so, it's almost impossible to describe it. I'm sure most people remember it. And if not, just type Scott in his big goal. It's really one of the... Particularly given the importance of the moment. It's just one of the kind of most unlikely freakish goals in certainly in European Cup history. And also, you couldn't even really blame the keeper for it. No, it you couldn't. It was so absurd. Bad position. It was just so weird, like you know, physics bending. It was. It was um, like those famous that Collymore goal against Tim Flowers, kind of times ten, basically. Hmm. It wasn't just that it hit a bubble. It was also the kind of angle and everything. Just, just weird. And again, that was you know when that secured the win and. Rangers were suddenly in the position that if they won in Marseille in the fifth game, they'd, they'd be in the, fi- in the final. Yeah, yeah so it was six were, points so, each, wasn't it? So it was, and it was head-to-head. So, yeah, so it was actually, it wasn't just a case of, you know, when you have an advantage. It was Both teams went into that game knowing if they win, that's it. They can't be caught. A couple of little bits on this game about Nisbet in particular. He was forced to retire the following year, 25 years old, that he had a... Mm. That, uh, well, looked like a groin strain, became a serious pelvic industry, so that was a shame. You mentioned cricket before. Uh, Andy Gorham was in his class was in his classic tracky bottoms this night, the tracky bottoms, <laughs> um, and he was on Question of Sport once. And, he had, and when they have that little bit of a chat about things that you know, interesting anecdotes, he played cricket for Scotland. Andy Gorham yeah. and faced Merv Hughes on the nineteen eighty nine Ashes tour, and um, <laughs> Merv Hughes told him to stick to football after one of his uh, bouncers whizzed past Gorham's head. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, different careers. It's, it's, it's when you think about it, it never seems that long ago in the 90s, does it, even though it is, when you hear about people playing cricket as well as being a footballer. And... He was half decent. He's, apparently, he's the only person to play first-class cricket and full international football for Scotland. Wow. And also players players getting injured playing squash. That's not something you hear yeah. about anymore either, is it? You know, these things, it is definitely another country. So as you mentioned then, we go into the next game, which is the Marseille game, which is effectively, well, it's the decider for the group, isn't it, really, to all intents and purposes? Yeah, And it finishes one apiece. It's just worth mentioning the context of Marseille as well, how desperate they were to win this competition because they'd lost that final to Red Star in 91 on penalties. 
Uh, I think the year before that they went out, I think it was to Benfica in the semis to a handball um, that wasn't given. So they were absolutely desperate, kind of basically aching to win it to the point where they may or may not have tried to bribe absolutely everybody. I don't know. <laughs> but um, So it was a huge, you know, Marseille is quite an intimidating place. Again, I suppose it comes back to the, the old firm thing. Rangers may have been intimidated by the quality of footballers, but probably not by the atmosphere. Um, and yeah, it was a good game. It was kind of um, ended one all. As you say, Frank Soze has got a really good goal first half. Then Durant's got a beautiful half volley not long after half time. Um, and then you had that kind of weird tension for the last 20 odd minutes where both teams, if they scored, they're in the European Cup final. But obviously, if they concede, there's no way back. So it was re- from memory. I might I might misremember, but it was. Re- it felt like it was reasonably cagey after that. Both teams are more concerned about not losing than, than winning. But, of course, Marseille had the advantage because their goal difference was better and their head-to-head would now be better because they'd have an extra away goal. So maybe, maybe again, in hindsight, maybe Rangers could have pushed more um, for a winner in that game when it was still in their control because once they drew, it went out of their control. They knew that if Marseille won the last game, then um, nothing Rangers could do unless they... Yeah, basically, there was nothing they could do. They were out. It's worthwhile just running through the teams, actually, because we've not really covered the Rangers team as yet. But the teams for this game, Marseille were Bartes, Jock, Anglomar, Dimeco, Boli, Soze, Adeli, Boxic, Voller, Ayu and Deschamps as captain. Rangers was Gorham, McCall, Robertson, Goff, McPherson, Brown, Stephen, Ferguson, McCoy, Durant and Hustra. McSweegan came off the bench and so did Maury. Yeah, I think a really important point to make is that McCoy and Haitley didn't play together in either Marseille game, oh, right, um, yeah. which is such a regret because they were a brilliant partnership. McCoy's played in this game. Mm. I think they played 4-5-1 from memory. And it was like support from Durant and Hoistra and Steven. Um, I, I, you don't know what would have happened if they both played. Um, but yeah, it's a shame. And they did have all, they also had the foreign rule to compete with at the time, which is kind of remembered in this country more for the impact on Man United. But actually... Um, Rangers had a few players as well. They couldn't play. People like Gary Stevens, Dale Gordon, uh, Mikhailichenko couldn't always play. Mm. So it did have an impact on them as well. I think they actually lobbied quite strongly during this season to try and get rid of it uh, with, without success. But yeah, it, it was certainly an issue. It's. A, I think also one of the big what ifs is just if they if they could have had the positive attitude and self belief that they clearly had towards the end of the campaign. Um, you know, especially in the game against Marseille and Rob was saying in the final match they played very well, even though they didn't win against CSKA. If they'd had that at the, you know, the get-go of the Marseille game at Ibrox, when you had McPherson, you know, panicking and blutering a kick to sort of <laughs> set the tone that we're not quite sure we deserve to be here... Um, because they did have a load of great players. Mm. They were a really good team. They were bossing it domestically. They'd built up a fair bit of European experience on, in the previous years as we as we spoke. I mean, it's only the record only begins to look bad as a piece after this season, really, when they keep keep getting knocked out very easily. Um, but you know, before then, they were going toe to toe with Dynamo Kiev. They weren't completely outclassed against Bayern Munich. You know, they gave a good account of themselves. Um, and, 
you know, Munich just scored a couple of screamers and uh, uh, Ibrox that put them out. So there was kind of no accounting for that. And they also had the spine of the Scotland team that played brilliantly at Euro mm. uh, 92. Now, Scotland lost the first two games to Germany and Netherlands, but they were really unlucky to play well in both. And you would think that that would have had or should have had more kind of an empowering effect on them because they had Gorham, Goff, McPherson, McCall and McCoy. It's pretty much the spine. Um, Goff in particular had a spectacularly good tournament. Um, but yeah, I, I think Scott's right. Maybe there was a kind of slightly unconscious inferiority complex well and also like uh, you know after the sort of 1980s highs of Aberdeen winning the cup winners cup and Dundee United getting to the UEFA cup none of the Scottish teams had really done a great deal in Europe mm. since so it was people were beginning to ask questions now is, is Scottish football on the on the slide Mm. Which of course it was. <laughs> now, <laughs> yeah. now looking back, but you know at the time, yeah, but, you, but I think that you can understand why Rangers would sort of think, uh, you know, we can't be too gallus here. We've got to rein it in a bit. We've kind of got to know our place. But it's it's just a shame they didn't just didn't go for it from the start because they were, you know, they were a very decent side. They they weren't as good as Marseille. Um, that have probably gotten well beaten by Milan in the final. But I'm know, not sure you, about that. You just never know. We'll get on to Milan, but I'm not sure about that. I think they'd have, they'd have had a puncher's chance anyway. Oh, I'd be interested to hear that. So well, yeah. moving, so just for completeness then, they, they play CSK in Moscow in the final game and they know they have to basically do better than Marseille are going to do against Club Bruges and Marseille will no, want... The problem is they can't. Once they get to that, which I'm pretty sure. No, basically, sorry, this is just off, off. My, oh. Basically, they either. I'm not sure. I think the away goal meant Marseille were ahead, but certainly if it didn't, Marseille's goal difference was huge because of the six 0 So basically, yeah. right. if Marseille win, they're screwed. They can't. They can't. You know, they they couldn't win ten and go through even if Marseille won one 0 I don't think. Right. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Marseille win anyway, as you say. Yeah. Uh, McCoy has a bit of a, a bit of a shock and misses some good chances. Trevor Stephen hits the bar, so it could have been this could have been a win as well. Um, and in the end, well, it's it's quite a a, a pitiful sight as the Rangers <laughs> players collapse on the Ibrox pitch at the end. Really, I suppose the interesting thing is, end. yeah, yeah, it is. And you look back and think, oh, well, Marseille are always going to win, but actually, Marseille won one nil. Rangers draw nil now. So it's even with five mm. minutes to go, you're only a two goal swing in two games away from Rangers going through. Um, it's not like Marseille absolutely pissed it. They scored early, but they only won 1-0. The other interesting thing is that CSKA apparently celebrated wildly at the final whistle, which is interesting given that they had bug rules to play for. So there were obviously suggestions that Marseille had um, incentivised their performance. Again, I don't know. There have been allegations, but yeah, their, their reaction wasn't entirely commensurate with the importance of the game. A 0-0 that didn't time. matter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um it's worthwhile, you know, it's, it's, I don't think you can hammer the point home any more than this, how heartbreaking it is in some ways, in that they were unbeaten in 10 games, Rangers, mm, yeah. and, and went out. But I suppose, in, in a way, they went out in the semis, did they? Is that a way to look at it, or at least the quarters? Yeah, well, I, I think no, semis, one, of the, yeah. one of the reasons, um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of Rangers fans will still feel the sting, but I think one of the reasons it doesn't, it's never painted as like this, terrible lost opportunity is partly because they only won two of their six games and you know yeah. you kind of can't complain too much if if that's your ratio in the group 
And one and of them's got this bit. Especially, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and also the sort of feeling that the that the jig was up in the fifth match away to Marseille. They needed. I mean, if they won it, they were they were through. But the fact that Marseille could kind of they kind of had the draw in their pocket is is like a guarantee. And then Marseille went one 0 up against Bruges in the final game after like a couple of minutes. So that mm. will also have affected, you know, that'll have tightened Rangers up a little bit in in their final game. So it's not as if, you know, it's not as if they were this. They put in six amazing performances and were somehow, um, somehow aged out, and by a team that might have been offering. Uh, you know, free nippy sweeties all round. <laughs> um, actually, and also, like Rob said, the, uh, about the Nisbet goal that be, you know, that secured one of Rangers' wins. I mean, the other Rangers' win against CSK was oh the, yeah the similar kind of freak looping deflection that, like, compared to Nisbet's, looks like a tap in, but it's still a freak goal. So, I think it was what. It, it's a, it, this has been a very, very, very long-winded way of saying that Rangers, <laughs> I, I think, can look back on this with pride. They did their best. They didn't look a gift horse in the mouth. You, you know, it nearly mm. happened, but it just wasn't enough. It's a season to be proud of rather than a season to be regretful about. It's, especially, as so. won, yeah. especially as they won the domestic travel as well. Yeah. So, so had they got through, they'd have played Milan in the final. Rob, thoughts? Well, I mean, Milan, it was a great Milan side, obviously. But the interesting thing is, instinct is to say, well, look, Milan would have been too good, and they probably would. But ultimately, they lost to a Marseille side that didn't beat Rangers. But part of the reason for that is that <laughs> they were I think they were bored, basically. So basically, by March, they had already qualified for the final, and they pretty much won the league. There were 58 games unbeaten in Serie A, which, given how strong that league was at that time, is, like disgusting it really is but they lost that record Aspria scored a winner for Parma and between them and the end of the domestic season which some of which came after the European Cup final I think they won something like one out of 13 games they just had draw after draw after draw I think they were just bored but it's more that because they've won the league the edge had been kind of taken off so I think they were they were susceptible now Rangers would have had to play bloody well and I think they would have been without Haitley because I assume it was a three-match ban for the Bruges thing but I think Milan weren't at the kind of awesome best uh, that we saw a year later. Funnily enough, they played brilliantly against Barcelona a year later, which kind of came from nowhere as well. But I think when we think of that Milan team, we think of their absolute best. And I don't think they were by the time they got to the final, which is why Marseille beat them and why Rangers would have had an outside chance, I think. I don't think, it, I don't think it's absolutely certain by any means that Milan would have beaten them. And of course, Rangers could have played Nisbet and Ferguson up front. <laughs> yeah, hope hope for all sorts of absurd geometric. Yeah, there's, a, there's a kind of there was a kind of inertia in that Milan team, I think. Which I suppose you get that a bit after you you end like a you've been unbeaten. When you look at the, when you look at the team, it's hard to imagine inertia, isn't it? Rossi well, to Sotti, Maldini, Albertini, Costa Curta, Baresi, Lentini. A couple of uh, what? Just about three months away from his car crash, Lentini. Yeah. Um, Rijkaard, Van Basten, Donadoni and Daniele Massaro. The interesting thing about that Milan team is they, they hoovered up all these 
brilliant foreign players like Papin. I think they're Brad Lauge, but they might have loaned about to Fiorentina and Hullet. And all that. But you know, you can only ever play three of them at one time. I think they're Boban as well. It was just, it was a ridiculous squad. I always remember that later that year, this is really sad, but I got Championship Manager Italia for Christmas, Christmas 93. Whoa, that's was, a red letter day, first, isn't it? Uh, it was the first one, I think. They'd done, obviously, Championship Manager in England. But you took over that Milan squad, you're like, what, what am I supposed to do with this? Because you only ever play three of them. <laughs> it was actually, it was the point where the fun of Championship Managers having just hoovering up all the brilliant players. But it was actually the point where, like, I, I can't deal with this. I'm going to have to be into or something. It was and then you get the message, wouldn't you? It was Vonimir yeah. Boban is unhappy he's not starting more yeah. games. Yeah. <laughs> Vonimir Boban thinks you're a twat. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you wonder with Milan, you know, you were saying that they sort of got a wee bit bored at the end of the, this particular season. But they'd be used to relatively recently getting to European Cup finals and winning them. So mm. like they didn't quite have the high stakes thing, the chance in a lifetime vibe going on that Marseille had. No, that's um, true. And, and I, I wonder whether like, you know, if Rangers got through, that would be another thing that they could have they could have sort of fed on the fact yeah, that the land would I have think... been, you know, comparatively jaded. I think they'd have had a chance. Maybe I don't know. Maybe a one in five, one and a half in five. I don't know. But yeah, I, th- yeah. I don't think it's absolutely cut and dried that, it, that Milan would have won. Um, I, a lot depends again on who would have been available for Rangers. I mean, it's all hypothetical, but you know, had had that Hately red card not happened, I do think that was a huge thing. The fact that him and um, McCoy didn't play in a lot of the a lot of the games. Um, the two Marseille games, CSK and Moscow as well. I do think that was a big factor because they were so dependent on them and they were so, so talismanic. And of course, there was a bit of a movement to try and get after the whole after this game or leading up to the final. The whole scandal broke with Marseille and Bernard Tapie. It turns out he'd been bribing players and he got imprisoned in the end. And there was a lot of talk about stripping them of the title and replaying the game. They've never actually been stripped of this title, have they? Marseille, but they have been. They were stripped of the league, but they weren't stripped of this. Probably because there's no evidence you tampered with this, then they can't do that, can they? Um, But yeah, it's so it's you know how we've we've gone over kind of how would this Rangers team have got on against um, against Milan? But what where do we what do we think of this Rangers squad? Actually, we've talked about you know underratedness. I suppose does it remain underrated? This squad. Probably Um, in this country, yeah. I I don't think I don't think people learn the lesson than big leads anyway. Maybe a little bit. I think the this sort of period of Rangers dominance, there's a bit, there's weirdly a bit more glamour to be found either side of it. So like the early Soonish years, although not such a good side, there was just that excitement um, of something new happening that hadn't. Yeah. That's happened in Scottish football for a long, long time. And then, of course, later on, you have Gaza, Brian Loudrup. Yeah. You know, it, like how Loudrup stayed so long at Rangers, just such a great player. Yeah. Um, and and weirdly, this seems like the more workmanlike, or slightly yeah. more workmanlike of, you know, a few of the squads. But yet it was the... It was the um, it's the one that got the most success in Europe, and and weirdly, um, you know exactly as Rob says, the fact that McCoyst and Haitley never really got it together in the groups, um, that kind of robbed them of that, the little stardust that they that they did have. That's a really good point actually about being worked like Ian Durant was the main flair yeah. player, yeah. Um, 
scored a couple of lovely goals. But yeah, you're right. I mean, they, they were a really good side, just a lot of very solid, strong pros. People, I suppose they were embodied by people like Goff, McCall, and then Haitley and McCoy's too. Like, all fantastic players, but none of them, you know, none of them are going to do 500 keepy uppies or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a really smart point. And, and you're right about the glamour, certainly, well, both sides, really. Um, even though, funnily enough, of course, the Gascoigne uh, Loudra team were generally absolutely battered in Europe. But, um, mm. but yeah, it's interesting how we remember things. So uh, the final thing to say, I suppose, is, is is a quote from Andy from Andy Gorham, who said that to win the European Cup, I tip my hat to Celtic because on our run we realised how hard it was, which I think echoes your point, Scott, from earlier about how you know it should be, you should be proud of it. It's a, it's a fucking tough thing to do to win that cup. Absolutely. I, I wonder how often he's uh, expressed that sentiment when he's visiting his mates in <laughs> Belfast. Yes. yes. <laughs> right, yeah. um, it's probably worth just you've already talked about. He didn't go so well after this. So what happened after this in this comp- in this competition for Rangers? They made the group stage nine times since 1992-93. They've only advanced past it once, and that was losing the last 16 on away goals to that Villarreal team that had Marcos Senna and Riquelme and Forlan and Takanadi in it, if you remember that one. So that's what's happened to them. So there you go, Rangers 92-93. That was it. A little bit of a walk through that. Before we go... We will finish off as we do on our little, on our little, just a quick summing up of a journeyman of the week. And this week, it's uh, not other. Well, forget Peter Crouch. It's the original good touch for a big man player. It's uh, the lanky legend that is Ian Almondroid, six feet five inches of pure Madrid magic. Born in Bradford in 1964, he was signed by his home ta- home city club from the local Bradford team Thackley in 1984. Played 87 times for them. Um, a team uh, he'd never get a high total. Actually, I don't think before a move to Villa. In 89 of that year, then Derby for a year later. He had a loan spell at Oldham, hooray, including losing in our 1987 <laughs> playoff. So he didn't manage to get us promoted in 87. Did his best, though. Leicester City's record signing from Derby in 1992 for £350,000. He scored in a playoff semi versus Portsmouth, was on the bench Was on the bench for that absolutely humdingingly mental game versus Swindon in, uh, in that year, which left him... and. Brian Little left him on the bench when City were 3-0 down and threw Steve Walsh up front, I think, from memory, without bringing him on. Um, He went to Hull City on loan from Bradford. Um, After being a small part of a team on the up for Oldham in 1987, he then a decade later turned up and played his part in the great Oldham Athletic downward shoot down the flume of shit in our last season (laughs) in uh, the second tier, actually. And in 1996-97, he was part of the team that saw us go to the old Division Three, whatever the fuck it was called in 1996-97. Was it, was it League One that by then? I can't even remember. When his eight goals in that season didn't help us to be avoided from, from relegated. Looking back over his career, Ian Ormondroy concluded, I played for 13 and a half years and it was great. As Graham Taylor used to say, I was never a player who was pleasing on the eye like Tony Daly. However, I look, and I looked awkward at times, but you need to be judged by what you actually do rather than how you look. He's a funny one, Ian Ormondroy. He even played on the left side for Villa a couple of times, from I remember. A lot, no, no, a lot of the time. He had that Taylor had that unusual five-two-three system. With I shouldn't <laughs> laugh because they were no because he made it work. But they had a front three of Ormondroy wide left, Taylor wide right, and usually Ian Olney, and later Tony Casarino. Um, but they, there's no kind of you look at that and think 
that can't work and, and they it did they almost won the league yeah. had, that's that's probably the one season I really remember him kind of galumphing <clears> down the wing and he scored yeah. some important goals he scored <laughs> a really good goal at Spurs the night they won I think it was like late fair but it was something like the seventh win in a row and it put them top and it really looked like something might something magical might be happening um and then they bought Cascarino. Obviously, it all started to unravel a bit. Not because of Cascarino, but um, so yeah, that's kind of why I remember him. But I, I feel guilty now because he was he was a figure of ridicule. Mm. And I look now and think, well, that's not really fair. Mainly because you know he's better than he was better at his job than we'll ever be at ours. So, you know. <laughs> um, but funnily enough, the main reason I remember him, Scott will be able to talk more about this, is because of um, he gave his name to one of the better features oh, of yeah. the um, Guardian website in the early years, which I still. Some would say the best, in fact. Yeah, yeah. I think draws virtual match reports. I think he could do with it now, but that's another story. (laughs) They were great. A mate of mine's a mate of the guy who did that. Weirdly, we found out a few. So you were you commissioned him, didn't you, Scott? You were what you editor at the time. Yeah, I was. Yeah, it was just. um, And it was yeah, kind of a lot of people were going to put this. Why are you putting this up? This is just stick men talking bullshit, and I was going yes. So, so was it? Was it? Was it kind of a modern toss take on football? No, I, I I kind remember. of. No, I mean it was just like a. It really wasn't a million sh- miles away from David Squires now. No, no, just not, in stick men, you know. Not at all. Yeah. It was just you know, it was, it was slightly more um, eight bit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it it was like it was like side splittingly funny, and it was like always a really smart take. And and every week he would, you know, just like Squires does now, he would skewer the big boys just relentlessly, um, and you know, and create these absurd situations in these you know flights of fancy about what's been going on in the in the dressing room, how they how all these these characters that we know and love so well watching every week um, interact with each other. Yeah. Um, he had he a brilliant was... way of demonstrating hideously late tackles, if I remember right. <laughs> that, like the ball would go and then there'd be a, a frame with nothing at me and then somebody would come flying in. A stick man would come flying in. He was, um, it would be, it would, he was a man born too early because he would, yeah. it would be so memeable now. It would yeah. be massive now if he was around now. Well, he, he, you know, he probably is still around thinking about it, but, it was so it's, good, yeah. I'd actually kind of forgotten until you just mentioned it. I've just it. tried yeah. to find it's them. T- they t- t- killed the links. It's so disappointing. It's time to if, demand a, a, a revival, I think, of Ormond Droids. Uh, the links don't work. Those. That's so sad. But yeah, they were so good. And like you said, why, why are you... If people are asking you, Scott, why are you commissioning them? I would have been... What year was this, are we talking? Early 2000, 2000s? 2001. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I would have been in my sort of early, mid-20s working in an office, and I fucking look forward to it every yeah. single week. That's why you're commissioning it. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. And the the fact that it was, on you know, on one level, nonsense was, was the whole point. But it was like, it was genius nonsense. It was really, really funny nonsense. Um, yeah, he was sharp. I mean... Yeah, like you say, the, the the comic being able to do comic timing in like, you know, non-animated still pictures <laughs> yes. is, is of stick men. Yes. Yeah, of stick men is <laughs> is quite a talent. But it's a sort of shame about poor old Ian Ormondroid that we've talked more about. Yes, <laughs> about the cartoons. The, 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 the really weird thing. I mean, I don't remember a great deal about him, other than remembering him standing on that left wing you know, trying his best. But he's kind of that personification of the 
Ailton Wellesby match era. That little four-year pocket when the live games were on ITV. Hmm. And it was nearly always Aston Villa that were on <laughs> for, for one reason or another. And that whole team, they, you, you know, Ian Olney, Ormondroid. Oldham's they record did. signing, by the way, Ian Olney. To this yeah. day, reminds it remains Chris Oldham's Price. <laughs> yeah, they just have that, you know, that sort of faded glamour. Like a sort of dusty old rundown seaside town. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was the last tiny short season as well. I remember it was there was Gaz there yeah. was after Gaz's schoolboy's own stuff season, and then I think the season after that was a big feature in the paper because these kind of long shorts came back in, and everyone well, was like, "Oh my god!" Well, didn't Spurs debut those long shorts in the '91 Cup final, and everyone was there going, "Oh go. my, oh my god!" Gary Lineker's walking around with this voluminous you know amount <laughs> yes. of fabric flapping around us well you know where we used to see the the, the his arrangement maybe <laughs> maybe in, in, that's in full profile maybe that's why Gaza went on a rampage because he was so discombobulated <laughs> by having it, <laughs> it, was, it was it was meant to be non-violent direct action but, uh, didn't, didn't quite work out that way so there you go, Ian Ormondroid. He's, he's back in Bradford now. He's a community officer for the club, and he's also one of uh, the endless line of local radio blokes who obviously does local radio commentary. His lad, funnily enough, is a sporting talent as well, but he actually plays for Leeds Rhinos in Rugby League, which probably does ah. suit his dimensions a little bit more. So, um, so there you go. So that's the end of our episode. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your support. Thank you to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Thank you to you, Rob. Thank you. And we'll all be back soon. Thanks very much, folks. Take care and goodbye. Podcast Network.